0: Welcome back to the Alternate Oscars. I am your host, Gabe Guarin, and with every episode, I, along with a special guest, will be celebrating and rewarding our favorite films of each year starting in 1928. We'll discuss our brief thoughts on each film we nominate, and comment on the actual Oscar year, and some fun details on the ceremony. A few rules we always follow. We will be strictly following the reminder list of eligible releases. Those can be found on the website and the Oscar goes too. the amount of categories will also grow and evolve and change over time as a sort of tie in to the Academy's evolution over time. And one last thing to note from 1927 to 1933. And most recently in 2020, the Academy has had double years for varying reasons. We will not be doing such on this podcast as I feel it would be a bit of a disservice to both years to do that. With that said, I would like to welcome Dimitri Merritt to the show. He is an actor, activist, writer, film historian. Dimitri, it's a pleasure to have you on here.
1: Thank you, Gabe, for having me. I'm looking forward to um, discussing movies.
0: Yeah, so this week we are going to be talking about the films of 1931. And I'd like to start off by asking you, what were your favorite films from this year that were not eligible?
1: I, the list that I looked at, um, I assume they all were eligible. I guess they were just not selected.
0: That description normally applies to, say, foreign films released from this year.
1: Honestly, I didn't um, <clears throat> I didn't break it up like that. So I don't uh, have
0: answers. That's that. okay. That's okay if you can't come up with any. I guess I'll just say mine. I did watch... The Three Penny Opera. It is directed by G. W. Pabst. Stars among others Lotte Lenya, and it is a really good early example of German Expressionism and experimentation with the film medium, even this early into film. And then I also saw Imagine in Uniform, which feels like it. It was not always easy for me to follow, but I was interested in. It's almost commentary of sorts, and the director seems to have an interesting vision
1: i see where you're going now you're basically you're saying uh i was so focused on the american films considered under consideration but you're talking about foreign films in the sense that they were not in the group yes i understand what you're saying but i did not even um delve into that that's
0: okay that happens but anyways i suppose we should get into our actual lists
1: okay um it's interesting that you picked this as a category because usually it's the kind of category that people tune out in or they don't understand. I think this is a, uh, movies were changing, so from silent to sound. And it's interesting that they focused on this category. And I think most people look for, at the time uh, films were, they, some of them had sound effects, some of them had scores. Um, some of them were just outright silent. When I was looking at this, the list of movies that you um, sent, what stood out to me most was how did they use sound? You know, did they add effects? Um, was it the tone? Uh, for me, I don't know if you are familiar with um, how the studios were breaking up sound. It seems like Paramount had the best sound all around. So my Choices for best sound were The Champ, Dracula, Frankenstein, The Smiling Lieutenant, and Street Scene. The Champ didn't seem to have uh, a lot of music. It was focused on fighting, bells, uh, those kind of effects. Dracula and Frankenstein were interesting in that the creak factor, you know, the creaking, um, the bats. Uh, the Smile Lieutenant to me was the most unique in that it had, it mixed music with the dialogue, with sound effects, and the trick being to make it all sound seamless as opposed to being on a track or the sign going up and down. My selection of street scene, I thought had the best uh, various uses of sound.
0: You do bring up a lot of good points about how the studios were each using sound around this time, and how it was still a new toy that people in the film industry were using and were still testing out. And that led to a lot of great innovations and discoveries of techniques. With that said, my nominees are The Champ, Dracula, Frankenstein, The Public Enemy, and The Smiling Lieutenant.
1: We have some similarities in our selections.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we do. So, The Champ, I was mainly sold on those boxing scenes. They do sound very realistic and quite brutal. Dracula, I think, makes use of a lot of different, various sounds, but also succeeds at being very minimalist, which is fitting. Frankenstein, again, just like Dracula, has to create the sound of the monster, but also be minimalist and eerie. The Public Enemy, I think, has the sound that anyone would want out of these gangster movies. It is just, the gun firing is exceptional, and even just other sounds in the movie still hold up for the time period in which they were released. And The Smiling Lieutenant, I think the music is recorded well, and... It's just all around solid sound work, especially for the time.
1: Yes, that one impressed me the most. I thought um, street scene to me had the best use of um, effects um, set in New York, you know, with the trains, the traffic. Um, I thought it was very very well done that way but I thought The Singing Lieutenant was unique because it combined everything, music, score, timing, um, dialogue, which is very important. And just the
0: whole tone of it really impressed me. So next up is Best Art Direction.
1: My nominees were Dracula, Frankenstein, The Smiling Lieutenant, Uh, street scene and Swingali. I thought the Smiling lieutenant had a a very opulent look. Uh, Everything, the crown moldings, the furniture, the whole, I was very impressed, very impressed with that. Swingali seemed to be very expressionistic and I was kind of tripped out (laughs) about it and I was fascinated how they it just seemed like it was drawn and they were kind of like in the middle of a dream which is kind of like somewhat the story in a sense so yes those are my selections
0: you do have a very solid list of nominees and i actually kind of wish i'd given more nominations to the smiling lieutenant on second thoughts not to spoil things but as it is my nominees are an american tragedy City Lights, Dracula, Frankenstein, and Svengali. I think an American tragedy creates this great sense of a community which is appropriate for the, the sort of story that is being told on screen. Because in order for a film like that to work, you need a town to react to the scandal that takes place at the center. Despite the story of our lead character trying to rise above the rank, he is still in a place with a lot of people who can judge him and see through, say, his veneer. And I think the art direction helps reaffirm that. I I think the two universal horror films, Frankenstein and Dracula, both have a difficult task of adapting the stories from which they're based on, to fit them onto the screen and use a certain creativity. To back up the creepiness and yet sad humanity of the characters at the center, City Lights is just an appealing place to look at. Like the city, just seems opulent and lively, and somewhere you'd want to get lost in. And it also is a great setup for a lot of funny visual humor, which is a key in a lot of, in a, a key in a lot of Chaplin's films. And Bengali, as much as I didn't love the movie. I do think that the houses were well-constructed and there was imagination on that front. And I think the opera scene had some nice atmospheric touches and mood going on there.
1: It was also, uh, I thought the art direction was very good at the creepy factor. To me, it was. It was kind of like a uh, expressionist dream, really, you know, with the what's real, what's not real, the magical powers that he had. I thought the art direction contributed greatly to that. And um, the actors seemed very comfortable in that kind of real surrounding. I was impressed with that too.
0: So next up, we have Best Cinematography.
1: Dishonored, Dracula, Frankenstein, Swingali, and Taboo, the story a story of the South Seas. Dishonored uh, was photographed by Lee Gamps. I really didn't follow the story that great. (laughs) It really didn't matter in a sense. The, um, it was just so well done. Um, So that impressed me. Uh, Dracula, because he was a vampire and he was surrounded by darkness and light, which I thought was very important. And I thought they did very well with that. Frankenstein kind of showed two worlds too, the outside world, the inside world, Uh, the mood. I thought the mood was great. Bengali, when I first watched it, I was trying to understand what is this trying to say? I was so kind of taken aback by the art direction. And the cinematography, because, his, because he used his mind and his eyes to hypnotize how they lit his eyes to make them glow, uh, that impressed me. But at the end of the day, Taboo really impressed me the most, I guess. It was uh, a lot of natural light, uh, very dreamy because it's based on uh, a legend. And it was very hypnotic. I thought it was very hypnotic.
0: And so that impressed me too. Again, it's a very solid list of nominees and they all have their unique looks to them. Admittedly, I've not seen Dishonored. That was one movie I didn't even know about until I saw your list of nominees ahead of time. And I never got around seeing it. But
1: that was, uh, I think, a Marlena Dietrich movie.
0: Joseph von Sternberg. Mm -hmm. I may get around to watching it eventually, if I want to see more Joseph von Sternberg movies. (laughs) It's interesting. So, my nominees are City Lights, Dracula, Frankenstein, A Free Soul, and Taboo. City Lights, I think, just looks very beautiful. The use of shadows in the nighttime scenes and the ability to make the titular city just look so grand and welcoming. And then Dracula and Frankenstein are both very expressionistic and help us to feel a sympathy for the characters through the way they are filmed. I think A Free Soul might be somewhat less obvious, but I think it still has some interesting imagery going on. Particularly, I think back to the, like the woods scene when Steven and Jan are camping and when Jan is standing in front of a mirror that is a very interestingly composited shot. And then Taboo uses his location to its entire advantage. It just looks amazing. Like every, every scene, every camera angle just adds to the story. Yes,
1: I do agree with that. It made you an active participant. I felt really involved in that, and that had a lot to do with the cinematography.
0: Yeah, so next up, we have Best Adaptation.
1: Okay, I picked a movie called The Criminal Code, The Front Page, Little Caesar, The Smiling Lieutenant, which you can see in me a lot, and street scene, which also impressed me. The Criminal Code was really about the, I guess you could say the justice system, how you can get caught up in it. Uh, The fact that it's such an early movie made it really impressive. And you could see not a lot has changed. Um, It kind of centered around a poor boy who didn't have a lot of money, but he was caught up in the system. And so that made me think interested. Um, I liked it. The front page was rat-a-tat-tat, meaning that it was a lot going on (laughs) at an accelerated pace um, behind the scenes like of a newspaper. And so I was impressed how they, they made that pretty cohesive. Little Caesar, we all know that's a gangster picture, but it was like a kind of told from the gangster's point of view. And that made me interested too. Uh, the Smiling Lieutenant was a very different kind of movie, something I didn't know that I would like as much as I did. And um, Street Sing, which was basically a 24-hour period on a in a uh, New York neighborhood, kind of like a tenement setting. And I thought how they kept the writer kept all of the different sub-stories very interesting. You would get a little bit about this, a little bit about that. Uh, It covered adultery, it covered cheating, it covered um, a lot of gossip stuff, education, richness, poorness. It was uh, quite interesting to me and very well handled. So those are my
0: stories. I do think that's a solid set of nominees. I will say The Criminal Code did feel a bit too stagey for me, but I did like Walter Houston's performance. So my nominees are Five Star Final, Frankenstein, The Front Page, Little Caesar, and The Miracle Woman. I liked Five Star Final for feeling notably different from the other Edward G. Robinson movie from this year, Little Caesar, which we will get to. It's more interested in taking down or analyzing that uh, the attention-seeking corruption that can take place in newspaper tablets and such. Frankenstein is actually more poetic than some people might give credit. It shows surprising sympathy to its titular monster and doesn't seem to have the hatred for him that the other characters in the movie do. The front page, like you said, it's a lot of stuff going on. It is rapid fire. It's sharp dialogue, as you would expect from Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur, though it's actually adapted by Bartlett Cormac. Little Caesar is just a really solid gangster movie that tells a lot of interesting stories in its narrative. And then The Miracle Woman, I think, is a great melodrama, showing us the hypocrisy that comes with religion. And now the people practicing it aren't all that valuable in the eyes of the people preaching this religion. So yeah, those are my list of nominees. Yeah,
1: that's a good choice. I have to say you're... um... Your selection of Frankenstein, which was something I didn't really consider until I saw it on your list, as far as the script, I agree. It was very tight, very, um, no, I agree. It was a good story, a very moving story. And I do think sometimes we forget that when we think of certain genres, like horror. And um, he was like an outcast. And I thought, yeah, it, it it was a good story. And I think that was a good choice by you.
0: Next up. Is best original story?
1: Okay, my selections were The Champ, City Lights, The Public Enemy, Smart Money, and Taboo. The Champ impressed me because it was basically a, I guess, older guy who was like a drunk, and uh, the relationship between him and the boy. I like that. That was impressive to me. City Lights was really kind of disarmingly basic, which was what made it appealing. You know, he looked at the girl who he thought couldn't see, or what well, I shouldn't say, thought she couldn't see. She was blind, and uh, he raised this money to help pay for her treatment or to help her see. And I was impressed by that. The Public Enemy, uh, yes, that was good. Smart money. And Taboo. Taboo was like a legend and it broke it down and I thought it was quite amazing how they did that.
0: I can certainly see that. My nominees were The Champ, City Lights, Monkey Business, The Public Enemy, and Taboo. The Champ, unlike some or a lot of melodramas from this period in time, maintains its emphasis on its characters and their relationships and it never feels too saccharine or trite and that's a credit to Frances marion who is very smart in that regard and many others in regards to her writing instincts city lights like you said is so deceptively simple yet just so heartwarming and charming and tear-jerking it's just a great feel-good time with a populist appeal like the best charlie chaplin movies monkey business it's just a great early marx brothers movie that has everything you'd want from a marx brothers movie i just had a good time watching it the public enemy shows a great rise and fall tale and gives it kinetic energy that leaves you feeling like the movie is pulsating with every turn and taboo like you said it takes the taboo and it breaks it down breaks the myth it shows sympathy to the character's plights all while being a silent movie
1: Yes, that was the probably the most that was more impressive is that it was silent, but you did not lose the you got it. You didn't really need a lot of words. Um, for me, it was like good versus evil. Is there good versus evil? The difference between what is going to happen, fate, um, fate versus your actual will. I was very impressed
0: by it. I was too. So next up is Best Actress.
1: Okay, Best Actress. Uh, I probably, this was the category that I was most uh, impressed by of all of the um, categories. I chose Bueller Bondi for Street Scene, Anne Harding for East Lynn, Helen Hayes, The Sin of Madeline Claudette. Norma Shearer for A Free Soul, and Sylvia Sidney for Street Scene. Uh, Beulah, I kind of like, was trying to decide if she is she supporting, is she leading, but since there was only one category, I gave it to her. Um, She did a lot of uh, gossip, backbiting, causing trouble, and yet she wasn't one note. For um, her judgment, it turns out that she has a son that commits crimes and is a bully. Uh, Anne Harding in East impressed me too. I don't know how many people remember Anne Harding, but I thought she was a very effective actress. She didn't do a lot of emoting, it was inner, it was uh, pro women before there was such a thing. Uh, she basically was accused of doing something that she didn't by her husband, who was actually the one going out <laughs> a lot, if you call it it was like reverse psychology to me, and she had a great speech when he was going to throw her out. She had a great speech about i'm going to leave, i'm going to you know do what I want to do, i 'm going to take my baby, and then he reminded her that she couldn't do that. If she left, she would left on her own. And it just reminded you of how little women had to work with at that time. They hadn't, it didn't seem like she had a lot of rights. She really, all the power was on him. He had all the power. Helen Hayes, to me, it was like a melodrama, but I was impressed how she started off as a young innocent. Then she became hardened. She became a prostitute because she had a baby and the guy who she thought loved her would not marry her. And to see her disintegrate and yet keep a sense of, I'm gonna take care of my baby, I thought she really showed that well. Uh, Norma Shearer, what can you not say about Norma Shearer? She seemed a very, a woman quite ahead of her time. And uh, I thought she really showed that well. It was kind of like she also was innocent, yet her and her father had a strange relationship, I thought. Um, if you remember, it start, the movie starts with her asking him to pass her her underwear, and there's like a <laughs> kind of uncomfortableness about what is going on with these two. But then you see her progress, coming to her own, start going out with a guy who turned out to be a thug and her innocence is hardened. She starts to take, make her own way and the tables are turned. And I thought that was interesting how she showed that. And then Sylvia Sidney, um, street scene really rises and falls on her shoulders. And I know you picked her for an American tragedy but I thought that street scene really kind of um, gave her a better showcase, at least to me. Um, she seemed simple, but she was getting all of it. She was learning about life. She had a mom who was in trouble. She had a father who was there but not there. She wanted better for her life than what the community offered her, and I thought she showed that very well. And I was impressed with her. I thought all of these women had something to say, and I thought they all did excellently, kind of showing us a different side of things from their point of view, and in the different situations that women were actually in and still are in many ways.
0: I do see all those points. Street scene was for me kind of hard to parse And I just didn't know what to make of it. And it ultimately just kind of left me cold. But I guess I could respect what it was doing. So, my Best Actress nominees are Sylvia Sidney for An American Tragedy. Sally Eilers for Bad Girl. Norma Shearer for Free Soul. Barbara Stanwyck for The Miracle Woman. And Joan Blondell for Night Nurse. I think Sylvia Sidney has an innocence in her character that makes you all the more sadder when she is killed by George. And she is just such a fascinating character in her relationship with George at the beginning. And you just can't take your eyes off her. Sally Eilers, I think, handles the sort of ridiculousness of the plot and manages to strike up good chemistry with James Dunn. Norma Shearer, she is just a jubilant presence, so full of life and ready to go at everything. And she does balance out her on screen father Lionel Barrymore very, very well. They do have a very believable relationship. Barbara Stanwyck, even in her early even in an early stage of her career, is still as feisty and steely as you would expect from something like Fall of Fire, Double Indemnity, or even Stella Dallas. And she also convinces us in her character's convictions and beliefs and her disillusionments as she goes to trick, I think, the church. And then Joan Blondell is not really a leading character. It's another Barbara Stanwyck movie, but she is such a fun scene stealer. She steals every scene she's in and she's just so funny and amazing. Uh,
1: the, your, the movie that you picked for uh, Barbara Stanwyck, The Miracle Woman, uh, I thought her best scene was her, the first scene when she reads the riot act to the congregation of hypocrites after her father had died. Uh, she reminded me a little bit of, there was a preacher, I don't know, Amy Pearson or McPherson. I don't know if it was based on that, but she reminded me how, of that. She seemed to, I just thought her first scene was the best scene. Um, Barbara Steinwick always seemed very good at whatever she felt inside. She seemed very good at vocalizing it verbally and being able to say stuff out loud that most people would not say. And I thought she was quite riveting in the first five minutes. So yes, that was a good choice on your part.
0: (laughs) I'm glad we agree on that. So next up is best actor.
1: Okay, my choices were John Barrymore in Swingali, Wallace Berry in The Champ, Charlie Chapman in City Lights, James Dunn in Bad Girl, and Edward G. Robertson in Little Caesar. John Barrymore, even though I didn't really uh, love Swingali, I did like the idea that. He seemed kind of lost until he met this girl that he thought he could make into something, and he did. But the fact that he was giving so much of himself to her and that it was taking everything out of him, kind of like a sacrifice in a sense, and it eventually did, uh, I thought it was impressive. Also, I don't know if most people know that John Barrymore was never nominated for an Academy Award. And even though uh, you did pick Lionel, I kind of thought he was more supporting, even though I know it's only one category. And yes, he did impress me in a way, but I just thought John Barrymore was a little bit there. Wallace Berry played a, has been drunk. And I think there's been lots of movies about drunks, but I think what made him unique was that he wasn't really an apologist for his kind of like brute behavior, how he was toward people. But somehow the little boy kind of brought out his soft side and that moved me. I was very moved by that. Charlie Chapman seemed to be, because it was changing with sound and silent, Charlie, of course, didn't give in so easily. And yet in this field of talking pictures, he seemed to remain true to what he felt was the better way of communicating, which was silently, kind of like poetry in in silence. And I thought he was very well at showcasing that. James Dunn, I don't think a lot of people remember him and I know that you picked the actress. What was her name? Sally Ellers in Bad Girl, but he impressed me because he started off as a boy who was uh, became softer because of her. And watching him showcase that impressed me, especially after she got pregnant. And she was afraid to tell him because she thought, well, as a married couple, we don't have money. He may or may not want this baby. And then he goes to the doctor, some rich doctor, and he pleads his case and begs the doctor to please um, help deliver the baby that he know he couldn't afford to have, or he couldn't also afford to pay a doctor of this guy's caliber to help. But the guy was so moved by his pleading and his breakdown, and so was I, because in most movies, especially of this period, men are not really allowed to show a lot of emotion. And to see how he came full circle with uh, affection and feeling for his new wife, and his new baby, the new family he's gonna have. I thought he was quite wonderful. Edward G. Robinson is of course famous for Little Caesar, but he was more than just a gangster who I think like John Barrymore, Edward G. Robertson was never nominated for an Academy Award, which is quite incredible. And I thought his best scene was a silent scene when he was trying to strong arm or bully um, an old friend into doing what he wanted him to do. And the friend wouldn't do it on principle. And just the extreme close up of Edward's face when he realizes that, wow, my friend who I have a gun in his face is willing to die for principle. And his emotion, getting that and sensing that and feeling that was quite remarkable. And um, I thought he was worthy of a nomination.
0: Yeah, it is interesting to think about how actors like John Barrymore and Edward G. Robinson never got nominated, even though they were quite popular for their time in their era. And even someone like Sylvia Sidney only received one nomination in her career, and that was later in her career. And then she
1: lost to a child.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and It does make you wonder how the Academy viewed people like them or actors like them.
1: Well, I had read that John Barrymore, who I think it was no secret, had a drinking problem. He felt like people felt like he, the Academy Awards didn't mean anything to him. But he once said off the record that had they invited him, he would have came sober. And um, I thought that was kind of moving that he felt you guys assume I don't want it or need it, but he really, I think, wanted that kind of validation from his peers. And um, I always remember that quote and I just thought it was a moving quote.
0: It is moving. So my nominees are Jackie Cooper for The Champ, Wallace Beery for The Champ, Lionel Barrymore for Free Soul, Adolf Menjou for The Front Page, and Edward G. Robinson, for Little Caesar. Jackie Cooper was actually nominated this year for Skippy, which is an interesting artifact, I suppose. I think the main selling point of his performance is that final scene of him sobbing over his father's dead body. But even beyond that, he does have to convey the burdened responsibility of almost almost-apparent child-reversal role. When it comes to his relationship with his on-screen father, played by Wallace Beery, he's usually the one having to care for Andy instead of the other way around. And even though some of his behaviors and mannerisms do feel very 1931 and of their time, it doesn't ever get too over the top. And Cooper is so surprisingly natural in those scenes with his father, played by Wallace Beery. And Wallace Berry, I think, is convincing as a has-been boxer. Everything from his stature to his look, he just looks disheveled. He's He convinces as an alcoholic, and he strikes up a very touching relationship with his on-screen son. They do have a good chemistry in that regard. And Beery is just such a genial presence that can make even a character as troubled as Andy work. I think Lionel Barrymore Again, just like Jackie Cooper and Wallace Beery, Lionel Barrymore convinces in his relationship with his on-screen daughter, played by Norma Shearer. they have a good chemistry, and you get the sense that they really care about each other, even if they can't always help each other in the healthiest way. And that famous courtroom scene is perhaps of its time, but it's still effective. Adolf Menchu in the front page, he doesn't have a whole lot of screen time, but he is convincing as the domineering yet charismatic boss Walter Burns and then Edward G. Robinson like you said he was known for his gangster roles but is so much more than that he was so shockingly versatile and he has such a unique striking expressive face that you can't look away from every expression he's making just leaves you questioning in a good sense and he's been sick here he was also good
1: and I'm sorry to cut you off go
0: ahead You go ahead.
1: I was just gonna say, he was also good in um, Double Identity. I think uh, Barbara Stanwyck and, um, what is it, Fred McMurray get all the kudos. I think that's who we remember the most. And I think some people forget that Edward was in that. And I thought he was very good. And uh, I agree, he was much more than a gangster. I think that became like his signature um, role, his stick. (laughs) But he was a very fine and capable actor. And um, yes, I agree, he continues to surprise when I see him in non, um, non-Edward kind of movies, <laughs>
0: like this one. Yeah, he's just so remarkable. So next is best director.
1: I picked Charlie Chaplin in City Lights, Ernest Lubavitch, I think I'm pronouncing, mis- maybe mispronounced it, in um, The Singing Lieutenant F.W. Murnau in Taboo, King Vidor in Street Scene, and James Whale for Frankenstein. Charlie Chapman, where do we begin with Charlie Chapman? I think that City Lights was so magical. That's the word I can <laughs> pick for that. He kept that all together, he kept it all tight, and he kept it moving without becoming boring. I think on paper, a tramp or a hobo trying to help a sighted girl or a blind girl get sight doesn't seem like, it seemed like it wouldn't make a good story for like an hour and a half. But every little nuance that he picks around her, around him, the situations, is a funny situation between a um, millionaire who only recognizes Charlie when he's drunk, the millionaire is drunk, And when he's sober, he doesn't remember him or doesn't notice him. I think with that bit, that was hilarious. Of course, the very famous ending, to me, it ends kind of abruptly, but in a good way, because she sees him in in a new light, literally and figuratively, and we do at the same time. And I think we see his heart and she sees his heart and it's uh, moving without becoming maudlin. Um, so yes, I think he handled that wonderfully. Ernest, how would you say, how would you pronounce his name? I would say Lubitsch.
0: Ernst Lubitsch. Okay.
1: The singing detective. And yes, go ahead.
0: It's the smiling lieutenant.
1: That's what I meant to say. I'm I'm reading my notes upside down. <laughs> the singing lieutenant. He also took something on paper that seemed to be difficult to make manage, but he made it manage quite beautifully as well. I was very taken with that. He had a lot to work with, the music, the comedy, um, sound, all of it. And uh, they said he had a touch, and I thought he proved that in that. And it was a beautiful piece of work. F.W. Renaud with Taboo, still directing basically a sonnet picture, but doing that so beautifully as well. Like I said, a legend and showing us the legend. I thought it was a beautiful story. And I thought he kept us connected with the two lovers, two lovers who basically were kind of ill-fated to be together. And yet they were trying to make it work, even though it couldn't work. And I thought he did that quite beautifully, especially at the end with the the boy is trying to swim to her after she's been kidnapped, I should say, not kidnapped, but taken back by her family to the island, to a different island. And he swims so far to get to her and doesn't make it. And just how it was directed and shown with the music, with the lights, I was very moved by that too. Uh, King the door, and street scene. Basically, it's like a play, and it is based on a play. But I, you, I think you said you were not really as taken. You weren't really taken with it. But I thought he kept a lot going. He had great shots of of things happening in various parts of the city, without any dialogue, just showing us people hanging clothes, people walking. Um, which sounds kind of trite, but it's not. It was very cohesive. And uh, I thought thought that was wonderful. Uh, James Whale, Frankenstein to me was, he created a mood with the movie, which really wasn't that long. It was not as long as um, I thought it was. The set pieces, um, the laboratory, the home, when he kept it very well done. And he kept us connected to the monster, Franken, uh, well, Frankenstein's monster. And I started to really care about what happened to him. And I thought he showcased all of that quite effectively. And his uh, points of view shots were not regular points of view shots. And I thought it was very challenging and very humanizing. He made basically a horror movie a
0: work of art, and that's
1: how I saw it, and that impressed me, and so those were my selections.
0: You do bring up good points about James Wall's direction of Frankenstein and how what could have been just a B-movie, schlock movie, instead becomes a work of art, and that takes a lot of imagination and innovation. And I thought he created like, a good tension, a good tension and a move. good tension. Yeah, he definitely did. So my nominees are King Vidor for The Champ. Charlie Chaplin for City Light, Louis Smallstone for The Front Page, Frank Capra for The Miracle Woman, and F.W. Murnau for Taboo. I think King Vidor's direction in The Champ never gets ahead of itself or in the way of the movie. He keeps the focus squarely on the characters and doesn't let the settings around them feel too stilted, but also not too overwhelming. It does have the appropriate tone for the story it's trying to tell, and I appreciated that. And I think I'll just co-sign everything you said about Charlie Chaplin and City Lights. Just the little touches, the overall tone. It's just a magnificent, beautiful movie. And then Louis Malstone, he he keeps the movie from ever feeling too sluggish. And he trusts his actors to just rattle off the dialogue. Frank Capra, I think he, even this early in his career, has such a good handling of the sentiment of the films he was directing. And again, he trusts his actors. He's a really good actors director, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. And then F.W. Murnau for Taboo. Again, just a work of art. Just a beautiful expressionistic expressionistic piece of art. Those are so good yeah. choices.
1: You seem to be taken, quite taken, with The Miracle Woman.
0: Yeah, I was interested in checking it out because it had Frank Capra and Barbara Stanwyck this early in their careers, and I really liked it. So, next up is Outstanding Production. Okay. My
1: choices were uh, City Lights, The Front Page, The Singing Lieutenant, Street Scene, and Taboo. Of course, as I said, City Lights impressed me a lot. Um, I was kind of surprised that it was so snubbed by the academy it didn't really get any nominations which surprised me i think perhaps that was because of um it seems like there was a battle going on for sound and silent and it seems like during this era they were picking subpar sound sound pictures over impressive silent movies that seemed to really be gaining their footing but it seemed kind of Passe, I guess, to some people, but it's ironic that City Lights is considered by many to be Chaplin's masterpiece, and um, I'm shocked that it was so over, that it was completely overlooked. Um, I found it to be fantastic and quite incredible. The front page. I was kind of torn between the front page. I mean, it, it was interesting, but it, um, I don't know. They had, there was a lot of chauvinism in it. It seemed like the ending kind of left me dry. I guess I picked it mostly because it did cover a lot of impressive topics, uh, media versus uh, money. What, did, what does a newspaper do? to get the front page. It's kind of like today. What does the media do to get on the news? Uh, What do you have to do to be number one? But it seemed like all of the women characters in the movie were kind of uh, pushed aside or kind of denigrated. There was a girl who was going with one of the reporters and at the end, she basically gives up everything to be, to stay with him even though he kind of dismissed her, he dismissed his own mother, who I think they tried to hold hostage, Just, You know, it's a lot going on. But overall, oh, there's a prostitute here in my notes I had There was a prostitute in the picture who had evidence of a crime and they kind of dismissed her. And I thought she had more morals and humanity than any of these so-called newspaper men which I guess was the whole point of it. Um, I don't know, I just had uh, some issues with it. The casual racism in it, um, I guess was typical of the times, but it was a little off-putting, but it was also realistic because they were all hard-boiled. They all were just about the bottom line. And uh, I thought that that movie showcased that quite well. The Singing Lieutenant, Again, it turned out to be a musical. I liked it a lot. I have to give a special shout out to Miriam Hopkins who was never really a favorite of mine, but I thought this one, she was perfect in it. She was like a a girl who was very innocent or seemed to be very innocent. And her boyfriend makes a, um, the lead character makes a pass at his girlfriend who, Miriam mistakes as for her as the princess. I I like the idea of the dynamics between her and Claudette Colbert who was actually the boy's girlfriend. And then they sing this weird song called um, Jazz Up Your Lingerie. The girlfriend is trying to show the innocent princess how to be more seductive (laughs) to her man. And that was very interesting how they both were battling for this guy who was really at the end of the story, basically doing the wrong? And Mary Hopkins has a great scene, kind of like that predates Greece, the movie Greece, where Sandy has a transformation. Well, the princess has a transformation and she becomes a, a seductress. And the guy who doesn't really love her starts to love her. And I couldn't be clear if he loves her because she's her or he loves her because. This transformation that she's showing is all about him and only him, and making him feel great. So that was uh, a little bit. <laughs> I don't know. Maurice Chevalier was the was the prince. Well, was well, not the prince. Well, he was a prince or a captain. But anyway, that's what I thought about that. Um, I heard that she didn't. Marion Hopkins didn't really get along with. Um, the director that well, but it played, um, and her and the actress didn't get along, her and Claudette didn't get along that great either, but it played into the dynamic, and to see these two women battling for a guy who may or may not like them was quite interesting. Street scene, which you said you didn't really um, warm up to, to me just seemed to be I wouldn't say ahead of its time. I thought it was very ethnically diverse. I wouldn't say so much that it was ahead of its time more than it was to showcase how life really was before the code intercepted and kind of made everything um, kind of lily white and kind of not true. And it's interesting to see these pre-code movies tackle real issues like incest, like rape, like cheating, like stealing, murder, it was quite shocking to see it all played out on the screen. Not shocking that you can't believe that these things happen, but shocking that you're seeing them showcased in a vintage movie. And um, I was very impressed with that. And then the last movie, of course, is Taboo, which as you know, I I really did enjoy. Um, The Boy Swimming to try to get her back in the ocean at the end where she's been taken back by her family. And you think, well, he can't really swim too far because he's going to drown. But he made that choice to do that, which was how strong the love of the girl was to pull him to do that and how the music stops when he stops swimming, the timing of it all. I was really taken with that. a lot of these movies from the era of 1931 were topical and I think that's what surprised me and that's why I picked what I picked because even though that's 90 years ago you can see how much has changed and how much has not changed. A lot of the prints that I saw from your list, a lot of them were terrible prints but There were a few that were really in good condition, like I'd say Street Scene and The Singing Lieutenant, and it made them seem very fresh, very new, which is why I do support um, film preservation because they were gems, they really were gems. And maybe I'm rambling, but (laughs) they did impress me. And so those were my selections.
0: You did articulate your points very well and You brought up a lot of good points about each of these movies so my nominees are the champ city lights the front page the miracle woman and taboo i have already talked about these five movies in some capacity or another already so i'll be brief on them the champ is just a great melodrama that does what it should i think the city lights Is just heartwarming comedy and a romance that really captures just that heightened nervous tension yet joy that you feel when falling in love. The front page does feel of its time but not always in a bad way. The Miracle Woman just captivates you with its plot and its lead character. Taboo is just a great watching experience if you're interested in late silent cinema. So now on to our winners.
1: My winner for Best Sound was The Singing Lieutenant because I think it did all of the things that sound is supposed to do. A combination of music. Um, everything was perfect. The tone was perfect. Sound for me was The Smiling Lieutenant even though Street Sing was the close second.
0: That's a good choice. My winner was Frankenstein. I feel like that movie had the most impressive sound work in terms of how they had to make it, how they had to make the monster and the environment sound. Next is best art direction.
1: For art direction, I picked uh, Frankenstein. I thought it gave a great sense of uh, mood. And I believed that I was everywhere that the camera was, the um, laboratory, inside the house, outside the people with the torches. Um, The set design was, to me, remarkable.
0: My winner was Frankenstein. Everything from the castle to the outer locations, to the towers, to the laboratory, it all just looks incredible. Next is Cinematography.
1: My uh, selection for that was Taboo. Uh, the natural light, using the sun or I mean, not the sun—the moon as a character itself was impressive. And um, yes, that was my choice. It was very beautiful and poetic looking. Hypnotic is the word I keep
0: using for Taboo. Nice. It was a very deserving winner. My winner is City Lights. I just loved how the movie looked. Again, it's a very appealing looking movie, visually, and it's very sprightly, lively. It's just so much fun. Next up, we have best adaptation.
1: Uh, I picked Street Scene. I thought it covered a lot of ground in a very entertaining, kind of soap opera-y way, but I like melodrama. Um, and to see the performers Happen the time of their lives um, with these great lines and words and actions. I picked Street Scene.
0: My winner was The Miracle Woman. I think this movie's plot impressed me the most because it always put its faith in the character. The choices never felt too far fetched, and it fit the tone of the movie, with its opulent melodrama and seeking righteous justice or some twisted form of that. It was the most compelling for me. So next up we have best original story.
1: Uh, For me, it was taboo. Again, the idea of taking a legend and filming it and showing us makes it seem visually not as preposterous as it may sound on paper. And it was very involving. I was very involved to know what happened I got caught up in the um, story of the two lovers. Um, So yes, I picked Taboo. I thought it was very beautiful, very beautifully written, even though silent. And um, it was an original story.
0: I also picked Taboo. First off, it's partially a selfish reason. I wanted to reward F.W. Bernal for his accomplishments, but also everything you said, it takes the taboo and breaks it. It is such an engrossing vision to get lost in. It is very poetic. So that's. I didn't
1: pick it for that reason as well. <laughs> I wanted him to have some formal acknowledgement for the great artist that he was. And I thought this was peak him and I thought it was quite beautiful. I guess the last laugh that he has really is the timelessness of the story. Here we are talking about it 90 years later. So um, that's some indication of him. that.
0: It is a shame that he died so soon after this. Yeah. So next up is best actress.
1: Best actress. Uh, again, I'd say I was very impressed with all of the actresses. They all brought something unique. Anne Harding, as you know, as I said before, is kind of not well remembered and that's too bad. But I went with Sylvia Sidney. I thought she had a great year that year. And I thought um, she was able to showcase heart on screen. She's in the middle of a bad situation. She wants to be better, do better, be around better people. And yet in many ways, she's a victim of her circumstance but the ending ends on a hopeful note. And she was the only one out of all of the nominees that I picked who I wondered what happened to her. And I thought that made her quite effective as an actress. And plus I would have loved to seen Sylvia Sidney recognized in any capacity. And I thought she was quite wonderful in a kind of um, ensemble cast. Everyone was doing what they do, and but um, she did it best to me.
0: I do like your points. I chose Barbara Stanwyck for the Miracle Woman. She is just a such a fierce leading lady with a striking presence, and I just love her presence. And it's as simple as that. I feel like it's <laughs> yes. the most underrated roles. It doesn't get as talked about as Ball of Fire or Stella Dallas or Double Indemnity or The Lady Eve, but. It arguably should. Next up is best actor.
1: I picked um, Charlie Chaplin. Again, I was impressed that he was able to communicate everything without words. Um, The irony that he's he's creating his best work in the middle of sound, which kind of makes people move towards sound, honoring people with sound as if silence, it's uh, passe overnight. And I thought it's ironic that he created such beauty with no words and yet he was basically a victim of time. Also, I picked Charlie on sentimental value because he was actually nominated the first year that the Academy took that nomination back for whatever reason and gave him an honorary award. I think they probably were afraid because Charlie was so massively popular and was nominated in several categories. I felt like they probably thought he would win every category as much for sentiment as anything. And I think they probably just didn't want to have him hog up all the awards in the first year. I think they really wanted to spread it out. And so they took that nomination back. And then it turned out that Charlie Chaplin was one of those people also who never won an Academy Award for acting. And I think he was just brilliant. And so that's my selection for best actor.
0: Chaplin was a just miss for me. I really considered putting him in, but ultimately it didn't turn out that way. But he is excellent. Ultimately my winner was Wallace Berry for the champ. I feel like he almost anchors his own movie so well. And he's not just some brute. He has a lot of hearts and his relationship with his on screen son, Jackie Cooper, never feels overly sentimental or manipulative. It feels just right. So yeah. I liked him a lot and he's my winner. So next up is best director.
1: This one I picked King Bord Fidor. He just seemed to make all the dots connect and it was a message that kept the audience interested to me. Um, He seemed to be, what's the word? Unique in the sense that he took chances. he was nominated before for Hallelujah, an all-black cast. He took a what was basically a play, had it adapted for the screen, and had to connect all these dots with different scenes, different um, contexts. He never left the set, but you—it's impressive. He the filming that he did, the silent bits of filming—I was impressed. Plus, this is also personal. I don't know if people know that in the first year, King Vidor was, well, his movie, I think it was uh, The Crowd, actually won the Oscar, but in the category of of unique and artistic uh, picture. But Mayer, Louis B. Mayer, kept the voters up all night. It was just a small group of voters because he felt like it was too depressing and he wanted something exciting, more international. Basically, he wants to draw up support for his new academy. And he thought this was a too, um, that the crowd was too depressing. And so King Vidor basically had his Oscar taken from him and given to Sunrise, which is a great picture, but that's not the actual per, um, production that they voted on originally. So the idea that he never won a director Oscar. Again, there's a lot of people who seem not to have won. Some of that also was cinnamon. And I know you were a big fan of um, The Champ. So it's like he had two interesting pictures in the year. So yes, I picked
0: King Vidor. And I picked King Vidor for The Champ. I do think that his two releases in the year, Street Scene and The Champ are such interesting parallels and contrasts at the same time, and show his versatility and his ability to adapt to to different stories and different settings. He was also an auteur, and you can see that in a lot of his movies. He does make a lot of deliberate decisions, and this is one of my favorites from him. The Champ is. It is just, like I said, a well-directed, well-made melodrama that really struck me at the end. So next is outstanding production.
1: For outstanding production, I again chose Street Scene. I don't know why that it um, moved me so. There was a lot of uh, movies that I thought of that year that were more showier. You had Taboo being um, poetically beautiful. You had The Singing Detective a musical that must've been quite thrilling for our audience, used to silent pictures. Uh, the front page with a lot of stuff happening on screen. Old school people liked city streets or city lights because it was you know, silent still. But I thought streets seemed to me show the possibilities of what sound and movies could do. It was ethnically diverse in an era that wasn't known for that as far as movies were concerned but that wasn't the reason why I picked it. I picked it because it showed people from all over the world that wherever you were, here is a city and let's go to it and let's see what happens in this city. And you had all kinds of topics. You had stuff about welfare. You had, um, I think it was a welfare agent that was very angry with a mother because she she spent 75 cents to take her kids to the movies. (laughs) Um, People were telling them to go back where you came from regular stuff, and how does a regular person, quote unquote, fit into a dynamic of all this stuff happening and still remain and keep a sense of self, which is where Sylvia Sidney comes in. Um, because she wants better, like everybody wants better. But can she rise above all this stuff to get to better? And I thought he had a lot of scenes of um, just typical stuff in a city. And the sound effects that he used, um, the camera angles, exploring city life. The last thing I'll say is that basically the gossipers in the towns were people who were pretending to be neighborly until you left them. And then they talked about you. And that's where the soap operas came, I say, in. But it was kind of true because it was kind of realistic in that way and funny and touching and sometimes troubling. And so, Street Scene to me was an outstanding production of 1931.
0: (laughs) I enjoyed it. I'm glad you enjoyed it so much. And I know you did. (laughs) It's not that I didn't, it's just maybe I need, maybe I just was disengaged for some reason while watching it. And I just need a maybe I just need a rewatch to fully appreciate it. So My Winner is the champ. I think it is a great piece of character driven storytelling where every character decision means something. And not always are the best decisions made. And it feels realistic. Like that's life. And it's probably most famous for that ending scene where Dink is crying over Andy's dead body. And so heartrending. It is beautiful. So yeah. That is why I chose it. So, now that we have announced our winners, do we want to comment a little about the actual ceremony? Stuff like the actual Best Picture winner this year?
1: Uh, you're talking about Cimarron, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Cimarron, Cimarron. Let's talk about Cimarron. Uh, I really didn't know what to think of Cimarron. Cimarron was... a uh, Well, let's say the best, let's think about the good things. The best thing about it was the um, land rush. I thought that was beautifully directed. Um, If only the rest of the picture had lived up to that. Uh, I thought when the movie first started, there's a blurb that comes up and it tells us that, let's see, I wrote it down. okay, there's a land grab that the, America has still took this land from the Indians and it made a point to say that it was for white settlement. And I thought, oh, okay, so no one else is able to participate in this. And then the rest of the movie, so all the people get their land, except anybody else who's non-white. And then they spend the rest of the movie talking about not being mean or, not being bigoted toward Indians. It was a strange picture. Visually, it was interesting. Uh, You had a black kid who's, I don't know, he was on the chandelier and he was fanning the people, waving the people, um, keeping them cool. I know it's a product of his time, um, but I I found it very off-putting. And the, the lead character played by Richard Dix It seemed to be insinuating that he could be half Indian, but it was not really made clear. And yet he was married to this woman played by Irene Dunn, really had an aversion towards Indians. And then he leaves his family for five years, Um, (laughs) five years, and he doesn't even tell them where he's going. And in the meantime, she's, I should tell the audience that he's a newspaper magnate or editor and he leaves the family for five years. The town gossips about everybody in the town and um, she looks down on everybody else, yet her husband is gone for five years. Rumor has it that he's with shacking up with some Indian lady. And so I thought, okay, she has all this stuff going on in her life and yet she's on her high horse gossiping about everyone else. And then he comes back stays a little time, and he leaves again. That's the part that I thought, okay, well, he left, he comes back and he leaves again. And yet she still carries a torch for him. Um, I don't know if there was a chunk missing that explored if she was angry or how she dealt with that. But as executed, it just showed that she went with the flow I think she made one crack about him being gone, but it wasn't enough to, to me, she had no scene where she could like get it out of her system. And I know Irene Dunn was actually nominated for an Academy Award, but I don't know why or what did she do that was so extraordinary. Helen Hayes in her movie, which I didn't think was great, great, but I thought in the Madeline and she did show better the passage of time and her development as a woman. I don't know, am I making sense? I, I'm just, maybe you saw something that I did not see in Cimarron because it seemed I to be- it's,
0: terrible. <laughs> it's a terrible movie. And on ironically, I think Irene Dunn is the only part of the movie that remotely works in any sense. Like the landmine scene is okay for what it is, but
1: did you not think it was kind of um abrupt that he would be gone so long and then she would run out there? And I did,
0: she, I did, uh, I did see, uh, I did think that
1: I thought I was, she was awful. I know, I don't mean as an actress, I mean the character. The character was awful. I thought the daughter yeah. was awful, and I thought I, he was awful. <laughs> as yeah,
0: people. the characters are all awful. <laughs> I was just saying that. Irene Dunn's performance, despite having this awful character, doesn't feel as embarrassing as the other aspects of the film. But that's not saying much. There's only so much she can do.
1: Do you think the Academy picked it because it was epic in scale, or do you think they really just thought it was a wonderfully entertaining
0: picture? I'm pretty sure it was well received first time. Even if yes, it lost,
1: yes, it was a. about it, it did well. It lost some money, but it, it did pretty well. It did okay.
0: Yeah, I think it does fit the academy's longstanding criteria of big and big picture, best picture. Yeah, and yeah, it is at least interesting to see how people's tastes change over time, just with this movie alone.
1: There was a scene with Isaiah. He was the uh, black kid who had sneaked his way to be able to go with um, the family, wherever they went. He went, he snuck and got with them. And I thought he loves the family, well, he loves the father, who I felt like was a surrogate father to him. And then he gets killed and it's kind of general, he's kind of generally disregarded, um, even on his last breath. (laughs) when Richard Dix walks right past him. I think Richard Dix, in all fairness, did not know he was shot. But Irene Dunn, Karen, she knew. Um, they sent him out there, I thought he ran out there himself, to rescue their boy. And he did rescue the boy, but he got shot while doing that. And it just seemed like, oh, okay, well, he's just kind of disregarded, even though they did have a scene where they brought him out and, um, I guess it's supposed to be the big dramatic moment of the movie where they're, when Richard Dix is carrying him. But it seemed like he was the only one that really was uh, overly affected by the death and the sacrifice of the boy. And I thought it was very jarring. (laughs) It didn't make a lot of sense. And then of course, Richard Dix leaves again. And I I didn't understand Irene Dunn's character Devotion to him with kind of no anger because he left her basically as a single mother. She's raising these children. She's trying to carry on the paper. She has a lot of baggage for a woman of the era, but yet they're still holding up Richard Dix's character as some great semblance of manhood. And I thought, well, wait a minute. What's wrong with this picture? (laughs) And am I overreacting or... Does the audience not feel and have questions what I feel in the questions I also had watching it? Because there was a material there, I thought, that could have been developed and maybe it would have made it a better or tighter picture. But for me, I thought it was a complete miss.
0: Yeah, it's a disaster. And...
1: And especially comparing to what the year offered in movies. I just thought, what are we doing? I don't know. (laughs) So yes, that's my rant about Cimarron.
0: So yeah, I'll co-sign many of the points you made. (laughs) And it does, just in terms of what was rewarded that year, it does feel very depressing what was rewarded and what was considered the best of that year. It does feel like an academy chasing trends instead of looking for quality
1: what's interesting um gabe is that i when we look at our list your list and my list if you didn't know if you're just gone by i have a big oscar book that lists all the awards as i'm sure you do if you didn't know um you would think oh this is a weak year there's no movies out here and yet we were able between us to pull out several quite interesting
0: movies. And yeah, uh, it was not a bad year for movies by any means.
1: I I just find that incredible.
0: Yeah, it really is.
1: Okay, I think you asked about the year, about the ceremony, and I did
0: look up some. I just wanted to say some things about the ceremony because this was the first year it was a turning point for the Academy becoming more known worldwide internationally. Yes. Getting a bit of a following and reputation. But Variety panned it for being a dull ceremony. And I just said on the Twitter page, I guess that's what you get when you have the US Vice President as your guest of honor.
1: Yes, which I found very interesting that Herbert Hoover sent Um, this vice president, which also kind of, I guess in the Academy's favor, kind of shows the importance of cinema and how the Academy was really trying to make this a premier event, you know, to having the vice president at your ceremony is no small thing. So they were able to do that. I also thought it was interesting that this was one of the only years in the early years where there were there were more, they like to say five nominees, or usually it was like three instead of five. And this seemed to be the only year of that era where there were, at least for the acting categories and most of the categories that there were more, I guess like five nominees instead of three, because it seemed like after this, it was only three instead of five, which makes it even more difficult if you are an Academy member at the time, if you're trying to pick people, trying to get five people is a feat and takes a lot of work. Can you imagine doing only three? And how do you come up with that kind of, um, with the vastness out there? You know, it's just, I thought that was quite interesting. And maybe it's maybe they were having, um, because it was new, maybe they were still trying to fill their oats.
0: I just think an interesting tidbit from this ceremony was that Jackie Cooper fell asleep on Marie Jessler's lap. And when she won, he had to be moved to his mother's lap. Which I thought it was him. quite funny. Yes, I agree. And you also brought up a lot of good points about this ceremony and how, as always, they are testing new things. Yeah. And it clearly didn't work out for them this year, but you know what happens. So well, I
1: think the best thing about it, and, you know, when you send me the list... I think for me, what was hard is because actually they used to do uh, the bi-yearly, the semi, the how was it? It was kind of like the Tonys, where it's in cycles instead of year. And so I had to decipher between the two lists, breaking down what was actually 1931, and the fact that I was able to do that and you were able to do that in a few, I guess, less than a week or a week. It's quite impressive, don't you think? (laughs) Yeah. But, um, and then there were some movies that I was considering, and then you had corrected me, like, no, that's actually Carrie over here. And so I could see them trying to figure out and um, sow the oats and try to perfect it. And thank goodness that it is on a yearly cycle, because this is, it's mind boggling to try to um, figure it down. What I will say, the best thing about the Oscars is that it does make you search out movies. Had it not been for maybe the nominations, whether they were nominated or not nominated, I don't know if I would have researched and looked up some of these movies. And I think that's the good thing that the Oscar does. It makes you investigate what's out there. And uh, I've always thought that was the best thing about the Academy Awards. It makes you consider things that you may not have considered on your own
0: naturally? So there were, in the book I read on the internet archive, there was a book I read on that site and there was a column full of unmentionables. So I'll just read them off. Skippy's director, Norman Turog, ordered his nephew, Jackie Cooper, to cry on cue or he'd shoot his dog. The award-winning cinematographer for Taboo, Floyd Floyd Crosby, was the father of rock legend David Crosby. Marie Dressler was set to take a job as a housekeeper before she got her first break in the movies. Lionel Barrymore's excruciating arthritis was alleviated by MGM boss Louis B. Mayer, and Barrymore said, or he said to have remarked, L.B. gets me $400 worth of cocaine a day to ease my pain. I don't know where he gets it, and I don't care, but I bless him every time it puts me to sleep. The (sighs) Oscar-winning screenwriter of the Dawn Patrol, John Monk Saunders, was the husband of King Kong's main squeeze, Bay Ray. And last, Marlena Dietrich took Hollywood by storm and many of its biggest stars into the bedroom. Among her conquests were John Wayne Yelp Brian Ahern, I think that's how you pronounce it, Maurice Chevalier, Orson Welles, and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. On the world stage, General George Patton took a timeout from the front. Adolf Hitler was interested, but Dietrich was not. She later wondered how many Jews she might have saved had she accepted his offer. She collected scores of famous women as well. One of those who took the pass was Mae West, who characteristically quipped she wanted to wash my hair, but I, and I didn't think she meant the hair on my head. <laughs> I just love these stories. <laughs> <laughs> that Behind sounds like
1: something Mae West would say. Ooh, on a side note, I must say that there were many actresses like Mae West, um, Marlena Dietrich, um, even Garbo, even though Garbo got a special Oscar, who didn't seem to be recognized by the Academy. And I think it's kind of sad because they kind of built the industry. It's ironic that we talk a lot about them even still today. Women were in many ways the backbone of the industry when they were writers like Anita Luce or Francis Marion or um, producers. Um, then like now, you don't see a lot of the trailblazers always recognized. Um, by the Academy, and I always think of that and hope that somehow that will change um, over time, especially toward uh, women. There were a lot of trailblazers and um, women and Black people, actually, and um, it's nice to see us at least remembering and acknowledging such a great group of artists, Um, a special time in Hollywood that I don't know if we'll ever quite see it, just kind of like this again.
0: I agree. It is sad how Hollywood seems to keep throwing women under the bus, especially in like the old days. But I just wanted to bring up the unmentionables because I do love these sort of behind-the-scenes melodrama Hollywood stories. It's just so delightful to read these over-the-top stories.
1: I never tire of them.
0: Yeah, although what Norman Teronk did to Jackie Cooper, the way he traumatized him, is just disturbing.
1: It is, but I remember hearing, I think it was Veda Grable who once said that it's what's on the screen that counts. And I think of that time, that's what they the bottom line was. Um, remember, they had Lillian Gish on a, um, on a float of ice. I think it was, they didn't really think about it. Um, Thank goodness we have unions now, but um, (laughs) at the end, I think they were just focused on getting what they needed to get from their performers on the screen. And I imagine that there are tons of horror stories, but I believe that was their rationale.
0: Yeah. So to wrap up, we have some questions from the audience from James Brown. Why do you think Taboo didn't land a Best Picture nomination?
1: I think it had a lot to do with sound. I think the Academy seemed to be obsessed with sound and I think they were just focused on sound movies. Um, I think, so, I really kind of think it's as simple as that because if you think Charlie Chaplin is the premier artist of his era, if he can't snag a nomination. And let's face it, Taboo did get an Oscar for cinematography, so at least they're on the list. Um, City Lights didn't get anything. I think they were just focused on technology and trying to be new, hip, and trendy. And a lot of people were ignored in the process. That's what I feel.
0: So, yeah, I do agree with the point you bring up about the academy chasing trends and leaving behind true art still being made from past trends.
1: I was looking at the bylines of their charter and one of the one of the sentences was we want to always aim to be about the advancement of the arts and sciences and I don't think they really um, (laughs) paid attention to that line a lot of times because uh, I think they were just focused on new. I can't really dismiss them for that because that's what people do even now. Um, But it seems like as movies were starting to perfect themselves, at least silent movies, um, I think it just happened to be a matter of timing with the Academy, who I don't think were so focused on arts and sciences as they were on the advancement of now and what is new technology and that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. So Zeta Short asked, did A Free Soul deserve both of its acting nominations?
1: I would say yes. Norma Shearer was a powerhouse. Um, And she acted in movies that were topical and interesting and well-executed. And I think Lionel Barrymore gave them a sense of heft because he was from the Broadway stage and they're trying to create the organization of artists and him being a veteran and a good actor, he may not have been my choice, but I had no issues with it because I do think he was a worthy recipient. I think we can both agree that there were far worse picks than the great um, Lionel Barrymore. So yes, I think they were, he was a good choice. And I think um, nominating Norma was
0: the right choice. I do agree. Of the nominees of those lineups, the actual nominees, I would pick them both. I do think that they bring unique energies, two different unique energies to a free soul. Norma with her more modern sensibilities and Lionel just bringing Heft with his more traditional Broadway training and his, for lack of a better term, older sensibilities. They do balance each other out very well. And interacting with characters, like Clark Gable's character or Leslie Howard's character, they are a very commanding force working together.
1: The subtext of um Leslie Howard and Clark Gable, who actually at first I didn't realize that they had made a picture together. I only knew of Gone with the Wind, but she as a modern woman is being, choosing between the safe and Leslie Howard and the adventurous in Clark Gable, which I think a lot of women then and now battle with, I guess all sexes battle with that. And then the idea of picking something that you think is exciting and, and good for you may not be. And I think that was interesting, that dynamic of um, her in the middle of that choice and maturing and seeing that maybe I had it good and I didn't realize it because this seemed so exciting. I think that's what made her a very interesting actress reflective of um, what many women must've felt. And I could um, only imagine that the escape of movies and watching how that's played out made it exciting. It made um, Norma, to me, a a quite impressive force in cinema.
0: Agreed. So, Dimitri, thank you for agreeing to be on this podcast. It was such a joy to have you on here.
1: Thank you for asking me. I, this was a nice surprise, and I, I'm thankful to be able to at least share in some small way um, what I think of cinema. And um,
0: So how do we find you on social media?
1: Honestly, I don't have a large footprint on social media, but um, anyone interested can um, find me on Twitter at Merit of Approval.
0: You can find me on Twitter as Gabe the Joker with two underscores. You can find me on Letterboxd as Mr. Hulo. You can find me on Instagram as Gabe Guarin with an underscore in between. You can follow the Alternate Oscars page at Alternate Oscars on Twitter.
1: May I ask you a question?
0: Sure. What
1: made you think of this, Alternate Oscars?
0: Well, back in October, I had the idea of watching most of the Oscar-nominated movies through history, starting in 1928. It actually extended back to summer, but October was the first time I decided to just commit to this concept. And initially, this podcast started out as actor-focused, but after a month, I decided I wanted to change direction and tie this podcast into my personal quest to become caught up with all the Oscar-nominated movies or at least most of them throughout time. And I think going in this direction is a great way to see how things changed.
1: Yes, I agree. Like they're like um, time capsules. You could, um, I don't know of any other profession or any other thing where we can go back in history and see how things were thought of or imagined. And uh, I do think that's what cinema Offers. And I was just curious, and I just wanted to acknowledge I'm glad that you're doing it.
0: Thank you. So be sure to rate and review this podcast for visibility's sake. Until next time, cheers and enjoy.